Okay. Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 2. If you're familiar with Psalm 2 and you've got an understanding on what's uh, what the world looks like today, you realize that there's a lot of overlap going on here. Yeah, and it's 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 one I've always, especially knowing that I was going to get there, that I've I wish you could spend more time on and study, and, and we're not going to rush through it because I think there is so much to to understand and apply. Um, to see to see the realities as they were written. We don't know if it was David or someone else. I know most of the commentators that I read uh, give David the credit for this psalm, even though there is no uh, name written to it. Um, and so it will probably... Let me read the whole psalm. We're in Psalm 2. Uh, the whole psalm, just 12, 12 verses. Very powerful. Uh Probably we'll just spend most of our time at 1, 2, 3, 4, and touch 5 and 6, and then Lord willing, come back next week and and, uh, chip away a little bit more. So let's read Psalm 1, or excuse me, Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Man, that's powerful. Whew, it's terrifying as well. Um, let me get to my notes here. So, just... Uh, it's, I had I, as I was looking through this, I had three different translations open up, which I normally do. I normally have got the ESV, the NASB, and the KJV, and all three of those are are usually heralded as the most literal versions of uh, translations of of the Bible. And th- to me, it was really interesting to see the words, sort of the synonyms that were weaved in throughout, especially the first. Um, the first three verses, and so uh, I will I will sort of give you the different the different translations, so you can see some different language and wording that's used to sort of help us understand it. But we we start with verse one, and we see a question, right? It's a question, why? 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, I, I thought, I was like, man, does he answer the question that it's asked? Um, he's asking God, presumably, presumably, but we also understand that this is this is can, see, can be seen as poetry and also wisdom literature. That's typically how we um, genre the Psalms, poetry and wisdom. Um, and it, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed and I've, I've really enjoyed the cadence of this hymn, of this psalm, but also the structure of it. Because I want you to see that God is a creator and he creates beauty. And there are ways of communicating that is beautiful. And as we go through, especially these first four verses, even five, there is a literary device that's being used. And it's really simple. It's repetition. I don't know how all of their translations are are structured or formatted, but in the I know in, in the ESV each verse sort of has two lines for each verse, um, and it's not always done that way. But basically, what you're going to see in each verse is an idea communicated twice for the sake of one beauty and poetry, and two of making the point. How many times have you told someone something and then repeated it in sort of a different fashion because you're trying to make sure that you emphasize and communicate exactly what you mean? Right? That's it, it and that's what makes the uh, the wisdom and poetry literature in the Bible so amazing is that it's done in a way that's beautiful but also in a way that communicates uh, as God designed and desired to communicate. So you'll see that pattern uh, for sure in the first five verses. And I just wanted to point that out because we can glorify God in seeing the beauty and how he communicates to us and his design and intention and his word through the men he inspires to write it. So he asked the question, why do the, the, the nations, also the heathens, is another translations. Why do the heathen nations, and that's just the way I'm going to refer to it, rage? So he asked the question, but I think that the question is sort of rhetorical in communicating that the nations are raging. It's not just saying, tell me why. It's like, oh, so you ask your, your child does something, right? And they're not, it's something they shouldn't have done. And you ask them, why did you kick your sister? You know, you're acknowledging it's not necessarily you don't really want the answer because you know there's no good answer for it. But you're acknowledging to your child that it's being done. I th- I think what we're seeing here is the psalmist is acknowledging through this question what's happening in the people. So, who what people? Um why do the Nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. Well, the NASB, or maybe it's the KJV, I can't remember, says heathen. Heathen? So 
basically the question is being in, in, in light of the writer of the psalm in this certain time frame, he's speaking about the nations outside of Israel. Because as we, Israel has fellowship with God the lawgiver, right? And what's a heathen? Someone who runs around like lawless, you know? You, I don't know how many times I was called a heathen as a kid. Right? Heathen, yeah. And, and in the New Test, in the New Te- well, even in the Old Testament, and then also in the New, not only are they referred to as heathens or the nations, but we're all, they might also call them Gentiles. Um, and so you've got this sort of this split between Israel and everyone else, and they might be called the nations, they might be called uh, heathens, they might be called the Gentiles. Even in the New Testament, Paul refers to them as the Greeks. Um, and so that, that, that's sort of where it's pointed at, the, the, the people that it's pointed at. Uh, but I say at this moment because this psalm is quoted in a prayer in Acts 4 and actually includes people of Israel. So remember that. That's, that's very interesting. So you've got someone within Israel sort of writing this psalm uh, before Christ, really making the focus outside of Israel. Why do the nations rage? Why do the, the heathens rage or are in an uproar is another way that it's said. Um, and then the second line. So again, here you see that, that, that literary repetition. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? And so really he's saying the same thing, but in sort of two different ways. Um, the word peoples is more of a, a, or people, again, connects to nations. It's a community, a group of people, and they plot. Now this is really interesting. That word plot, I think it's basically, uh, or devise, or imagine, is the same Hebrew word in in chapter 1, verse 2. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. But uh, So the blessed man, right? So we're talking about in chapter 1. His delight is in the law and the Lord, and on his law he, this is the word, meditates day and night. Okay? So the blessed man meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. Well, in chapter 2, the nations and the people meditate or plot or devise or imagine in vain. So this huge contrast between the, the people of God, a person of God, a blessed person in, in God versus the nations outside, the lawless nations and raging people outside of God and their thoughts, their mind, their meditation is actually empty, vain, um, useless. And what we're going to see, it's empty, vain, and useless because we're going to notice in 2 and 3, it's against God. So the blessed man in verse 1 is meditating on the uh, on the law of the Lord day and night, and he has a delight in it. He's, he's considering, imagining, 
And it's actually the word can be translated mummering or, or sort of just talking to yourself. And so they're plotting in vain. Um, no purpose but that opposite of the Lord. Now, he goes, and then we got verse 2. He explains it a little further. The kings of the earth, so the question's over, the question mark's taken place. Verse 2, he gives some more commentary on, on these people, on these nations. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So that's two statements pretty much saying the same thing, but again in different ways. We've got kings and rulers, and um, the first line, they're setting themselves. They're, they're, putting, they're taking a stand, okay, is what's trying to be communicated. The kings of the earth are taking a stand, and the rulers take counsel together. The, language, the Hebrew language is so similar. They're setting themselves like in a foundation together, right? To, 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 to take hold and push against who? The Lord. Now, well, I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers of the earth take counsel or they form together. So it's like an, um, we're, right, we're right close to D-Day, right? There was a lot of taking counsel together in World War II and World War I too, right? You had people setting themselves against. You had this. You had uh, this coalition come together, set themselves in counsel together. This them come together and they set themselves to fight against, take stands against one another. That's that's what these these rulers and kings of the earth are doing. But they're doing it at the end of verse two against. The Lord and His anointed against Yahweh, the ruler of the earth, the creator of all things. They're setting themselves together against Yahweh and His anointed. Okay, so we've got to talk about the word anointed for a minute. Um, so Israel has a practice for kings... Priests and prophets, the three major offices of Israel, okay? Kings, priests, and prophets. It was normal practice that when they came into office, they were anointed with oil. So like just some olive oil, I guess, I don't know. And just sort of anointed upon the forehead or on the hair. I'm not really sure the exact way that it's done. But that was showing that was a sign of God's anointing or selecting of them in that office. Samuel anointed David. Okay, uh, if you go back and look at First Samuel around the first five, six, seven, eight, nine chapters, you see Samuel anoint David. And so, in all of these offices, they're anointed. That Greek, uh, that Hebrew word, anointed is what we know as Messiah. So Israel had many lowercase m messiahs, anointed ones, okay? But all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament sets up this pattern 
that Israel is waiting on capital M, the anointed, the Messiah, right? David's not their, their king. They're waiting for a better king. You know, all the all the prophets that came along, they were great, but they were they were hoping of Moses. Moses prophesies of a prophet greater than him. Okay? And 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 the same for the priest. We went through Hebrews. We understand that Israel was waiting for a great high priest better than all who had been before, better than Aaron. And so Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of that word anointed in Psalm 2. Now, it also had fulfillment probably in David. More than likely, most commentaries, most commentators say that in this time, when this was written, more than likely it was speaking about King David because he was an anointed one. He was one who had oil put on his head, chosen by God to lead Israel as a king. He was a, a shadow and a type of the anointed, the Messiah that was to come. And so we're going to see this in the Psalms a lot. The idea that there is a an immediate reality to what's being written. There's truth in it at that time. But in a lot of these Psalms, we're going to see a true fulfillment in Jesus. And ultimately... When we go and look at Acts 4, at the end of this, we're going to see that true fulfillment in Christ. So, these kings, these rulers, the nations, these peoples, they're setting themselves against Yahweh and His chosen one. Anointed. I think that's just a singular uh, noun. His anointed, not plural. Now look what they say in verse 3. And I think this is the answer to the question. So the, we start the psalm with the question, why? Why are the nations rage? Why are the heathens uproaring? Why are the peoples plotting in vain? I think this is the answer. They are saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So who is saying that? The nations, the peoples, the kings and er rulers of the earth who are setting themselves against the Lord and his anointed, and they're saying, let us burst God and his anointed one, their bonds apart. Let us cast God's cords away from us. Now, again, verse 3 is saying the same thing in two different ways, basically. Let us burst their bonds apart. So bonds, uh, one of the translations said fetter. Um, what hymn is that that says fetter? Uh, come thou fount. How's it go? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I'm just now singing the song. Um, hang on a second. Come thou fount. Speaks about wandering as a sheep would wander from the fold. But he uses the language fetter, and he probably in this and this one doesn't come thou found. I'm gonna be okay. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I'm constrained. Okay, if you're constrained, you're held. You're held down. 
Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. Chains or bonds. Uh, in the ESV, it's bonds. Let uh, thy goodness like a fetter. Let your goodness be like chains and bind my wandering heart to thee. So fetter is constraining and holding and bonding someone to something. Okay? The nations, the peoples, they're plotting, they're setting their self up, self up against God to burst away from those fetters. To burst away from the change. To be unbound. And then the second way of putting it, and cast away their cords from us. Um... Again, just basically the same sort of language. Uh, ropes, bonds, halter. Uh, you know, we use a halter on a horse. I think that was for the, for the bonds. But so, so they're, they're setting themselves up in order to separate themselves from God and his anointed. That is why they rage. That is why they plot in vain. What are they wanting? They're kings. They're rulers of this earth. What do they want? They want autonomy. You all know what that means? So autonomy is a, is a, a Greek word, uh, a compound word, autos, where we get the word automobile. Your automobile is self. It's a self-mobile machine. You're not Fred Flintstone in it. You know what I mean? It drives itself. Monos meaning to rule or govern. So they want to be autonomous. They want to rule themselves and govern them govern themselves apart from what? The Lord. The Lord, right? They 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 there was a there was a a definition for autonomy that I found was moral independence. Now that sounds pretty wicked. Moral, like I decide what's right and what's wrong. I want to be independent. I don't want to be governed by something greater than me to tell me what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. Now, so we think of nations as autonomous, right? The United States, and it's this is where we'll start to touch on some things with today, but maybe more so next week. The United States has considered when they broke, when the United States, almost 250 years ago, broke from um, from England, they became an autonomous nation. We we were no longer under the authority of of law from um, the king. But the United States of America, when they wrote the de- when they wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, they did not declare themselves morally independent from all things. But they were bound and constrained by their Creator, right? By the natural law that says everyone should have the pursuit of life. Liberty, or the 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 freedom to a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if you think about the word happiness, as we've talked about in the past, 
that isn't just like, oh, go do what makes you happy, but the pursuit of self, being self, oh, I don't want to say that, I don't want to say it that way. Of living a life of meaning. That brings happiness, joy, not I want to do things my way. Okay? So we can use the word autonomy and autonomous, but when the, when you think of it in here in the context of chapter 2, these people wanted to get themselves away from him who sets the moral standard. Right? We can't be that. We can't say we're autonomous and we get to make our own decisions and go our own path. No, no, we're constrained. We're bound by our Creator, by His law. That's why the law is good. That, we're, not, we're not a church. We're not Christians who say, oh, the law doesn't pertain to us anymore. No, no, no. It very much does because the law is good for us. It's a good thing. What God has decreed is good. What He has commanded is good. So not, not only do they desire to be autonomous, but the thing that's happening here is they desire, and this all sort of folds out, they, these rulers and kings, these nations desire to belong, um, excuse me, the kingdoms that belong to these types of rulers find themselves in complete opposition to the kingdom of God. Right? The kingdom of God says this is the way. This is how you should pursue. This is life. This is this is righteousness. This is good. They desire to to dictate what is right, what is good. Um, Romans four fourteen, I won't we won't go there. Um, but basically it says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, which that's not really what we're talking about, but it describes the kingdom of God as Righteousness, peace, and joy. These people, the nations, the people, the kings, and the rulers are not seeking to create kingdoms and sustain them for the purpose of righteousness, peace, and joy. Right. So, so they cannot be, they cannot be bound by God. They, they, if if they are bound by God, they cannot pursue their rule and their way, their autonomy, how they choose. They must. They must separate themselves from God. But here's the irony. Now let's go ahead and go to Romans. Here's the irony of that, though. Those kings and those rulers, go to Romans 13, find themselves as kings and rulers because God put them there. Romans 13. Um... Let's just start at one and probably read the seven verses there. Uh, let every person, Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to govern, governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Okay, there. if you are a king or a ruler, you have authority over your kingdom because God has given you, had granted you authority. I was thinking, oh, never mind. Okay, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted 
by God. So we have these kings and these rulers and these nations, these peoples that are raging and they're seeking to set their own authority, not even not even realizing that the authority that they have over what they uh, rule over has been given to them and instituted by God. Um, just again, so we'll probably talk maybe a little bit more about this this week, next week. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, the people in Psalm 2, that don't fit very well. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. The kings and the rulers... The presidents and the governors are rulers, servants for your good, ministers of God. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Here it is. For he is the servant or minister of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. So in Psalm 2, these guys got it all backwards, right? They've, they've got it all backwards, and I don't want to spend more, much more time on that. Um, part of the heathen. Oh, yeah. So back to Psalm 2. Completely, completely out of step. It's, it's contradictory to what they should be. Exactly. But when you read these first three verses of Psalm three, this this is the heart not only of a, a heathen ruler or a heathen king or a heathen nation. It's the heart of a heathen, an ungodly person, an unbeliever, right? The, the, the disposition of an unbeliever is lawlessness. And it's, to, it's, it's autonomy. An unbeliever is not submitted to the lawgiver, to the creator. And so an unbeliever, a heathen, is always trying to keep themselves from being tied down to the bonds, the fetters, the chains of God's authority. And then enter in 2023, right? And that what we see is we see this compile this like snowball effect where authority has become authority. I'm losing my train of thought, but authority has become such a what's the uh, I don't even I can't even think of the words right now. The unbelief that 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 is that exists today is expressed in the chaos around us, in their running away from the authority 
of God. In, in just simply saying, one plus one equals two. In that sense, God and his authority and his creation made truths. One plus one is two. A man is a man, a woman is a woman. But we want to, as a society and as a world, we want to break our bonds. We want to break away from that truth. And that's what's happening today. Is this world, like, that's why this this psalm is very popular right now amongst the church. Because this very thing is taking place all across the world. Trying to break free from the authority and the truth of Yahweh and His anointed. Alright, so just sort of wrapping it up here. What's the Lord's response? What's the Lord's response? Now, let's revisit first in Psalm 1, verse 5. Because we have the reality of what happens when someone stands or sets themselves against God. Psalm 1, verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. So they can set themselves against God all they want, but he's going to plow right through them. Okay? So, verse 4. Now, this is a psalm where we have to make sure we, we see and know and understand God as the Bible has described him. Not as a gentle pushover. Okay? He's not that. He's not that at all. Verse 4 is his response. He who sits in the heavens laugh. Okay, so let's think about that language. He who sits in the heavens. Look at Psalm 11. It's not just talking about where he's located. Psalm 11, verse 4. This is a statement about his rule and authority. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So, he who sits in heaven, he who is enthroned in heaven, he who is king of all, ruler of rulers, He is not just about where he is. It's about his position of power and authority. And so he is sitting there. Um, let Let me read one more. 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So there it is. It's a proclamation of God's enthronement. In heaven, and so he sits there on his throne and laughs. He laughs. Now, he laughs from this position. It would make no sense that God would laugh at the kings and rulers, the nations and the people, if he was not enthroned in heaven. Now, what do you, what do you, when you think about that, what do you think it means that he laughs? Well. Remember the device of repetition? Verse the, the second half of verse 4. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Does anyone else say anything different? He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the last part of that, the Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them. That's what that means. He mocks them. His laughter is mocking them. Now, I got an illustration for the, hopefully, all ages. One for each. Um, Night at the Museum. You seen it? Night at the Museum? So, the Night at the Museum, all the things in the museum come together. It's in the Smithsonian, okay? And all the things in the museum come alive at night. Well, the, the security guard is you know, surprised by this. Well, anyway, there is a American West um, display, cowboys and Indians, basically. And they're miniature, right? And so even those miniature little displays come alive at night. And they're... And they, when they come alive, they act as if they were in the West. And so, you know, the cowboys are shooting at the Indians, and the Indians are shooting at the cowboys. And the guard, the security guard, walks in there, and they start shooting him. They're this tall, and they're shooting him. And he's like swipe, swiping, you know, the arrows and 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 everything away. And he picks up the little cowboy like this. And that cow, little cowboy is like, I'm going to get you. You just don't know what's coming at you. And the, you know what, he, you know what he, he was doing? He just laughed. He mocked him. Like, You're not going to do anything. I'm holding you up by my fingers. You remember that? Okay. Here's maybe an illustration for um, the older generation. Do you remember Three Stooges? Okay. Now... You know, uh, Larry. No, what was the heavyweight one? Heavy set, heavy set one. Curly. Curly. I don't know. Cur- you ever seen Curly go at at, at Mo, and Mo sticks his hand out and puts it on his forehead, and 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 and, and, and Curly's just going and going, and Mo's just sitting there like this, holding him, right? He's mocking him. Well, one, because then Curly is not the brightest tool in the shed, and he doesn't know to do anything different. But he, Mo is like, you're not going to do anything to me. And he just stands there. And in him standing there, he laughs and mocks him. This is what God is doing to the nations that are setting themselves against him. He's like, you have no power. You can do this all you want. It's hilarious. That you're even attempting it. And he mocks them. He derides them. Because he is the Lord. He is the ruler. And then. Uh, I think some, one of the translations says. The Lord scoffs at them. Uh, this is. This is. How the Bible depicts God. When it comes to those who think that they can outdo him, outmaneuver him, outpower him, he laughs at them and mocks them. Another illustration of the idea of laughing to mock or, or in playful mocking when David became a big, a big hot shot and was killing his ten thousands. Well, when he came into town, the women, it says they sang and celebrated or sang and played. 
David or Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. That word played in there is the same word used for laughs. They mocked they mocked Saul when they sang that song, and they danced. They did it in a dance in a song. And so and so that's God's view of the nations trying to. Do things their own way. Right? But that that's just the beginning of the response. And I just want to read 5 and 6 and sort of leave it here. And then look at Acts... And just look at this con, Look at this in Acts 4. Look, look how else he responds. This is terrifying. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury. Saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now look at Acts 4. Now, as you turn to Acts 4, I want to read something from John 11. Remember how I said that there was this was quoted in Acts 4 and it not only included the heathens, the Gentiles, but also included some of the Israelites? This is from John 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus, what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and counseled, gathered the council and said, "What are we to do?" They're plotting. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was was high priest that year, said to them, "This will give you chills." You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God whom are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Acts 4. Death, burial, resurrection, Pentecost. Peter, James, and John are preaching. They're arrested. They're starting to be persecuted. They come back together. Verse 23 in Acts 4. And when they were released, I believe that was Peter and John uh, from the, the Israelite, from the from the, uh, the leader, the Jewish leaders. They were released. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So there's our attribution. David did write it. Quote, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed Verse 27, for truly in this city. So that's the end of the quote. So they're they're still in prayer together. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, whom you anointed. Here we go. Who's against him? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They planned and plotted, right? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Why do the people plot and the nations rage? And Herod and Pilate and the Israelites plan? Because God was setting his king in Zion. They thought they were doing what they wanted to do. When all along, God sat back and laughed and said, My plan is working out just how I designed it. And he mocked them in it. For they did whatever your hand, Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And so we'll just end there. You leave today. You go and proclaim Christ, the gospel. You stand for the truth of of God and his good law, you stand for the word of God, they will be enraged. The world will go crazy. But you take heart that God is ruler. He is king. And he has set his king, his anointed, on Zion, the holy hill. And so, just like they said, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. We don't fear. We don't fear death. We don't fear. We don't fear any. We don't fear the plotting against us. The plotting against the Lord. Because he sits in the heavens and laughs. So the praise be to the Lord God for his infinite wisdom and power. Uh, it's something we could meditate and dwell on um, forever. So we'll pick up back and uh, next week, definitely at seven. We, there might be a little a couple more things to see in five and six, but definitely for sure seven and on, uh, Lord willing, next week. Any questions? Or thoughts? That's why we got on us. Yeah. 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 That's what Jesus said. Um, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. Yeah. All right. That's okay. It is okay. It's okay. And we'll love them. Like pouring hot coals on our head. We'll love them.
That's right. City on a hill. But be prepared. No one can shoot a star, but they'll try. All right, let's pray. Lord, help us to see. Help us to see more of your infinite wisdom and power and your plan of redemption that that dates back to eternity past. And we're thankful that it has come to us now in this world, in this life, that nothing can thwart your plan, that you will do as you have planned. And thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Crucified and resurrected. And we pray for these nations and these peoples, these kings and these rulers. We pray that you would help us to speak up as John the Baptist spoke to his king, Herod, and to call him back to the bonds and cords of you. So cleanse us, cleanse us as a people who've rebelled against you, and forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a blessed week. Let me know if I can do anything for anybody.